Right, as you can see, I'm in the Star Sports Mayfair office talking to Paul Jacobs. Thanks very much for agreeing to come over here, Paul. Um, you won the Racing Post Naps competition for the first time in 2001. Mm. And then you've since won it five times, as well as being a runner-up three times. What's the secret? Uh, the secret is the biggest factor in life, never mind horse racing, is luck. If you have luck on your side, the right place, right time, I think life can go swimmingly for you. And it's the same with horse racing, you know. You can do all the homework in the world. You can do two or three hours homework the night before. But sometimes when you select a horse, you have that sixth sense feeling about it, you know. And you think, yeah, I'm going to go for this one. Um, the biggest, one of the biggest factors for me, and it's very, very subjective, is value. Uh, someone's value might be a six to four about a horse that's probably uh, four to five. They want it to go to six to four. Someone will want 13 to eight or seven to four. I very rarely bet on those kind of scales. I normally go for anything bigger than five to one for my, for my daily nap. But it means that you can go on runs of 10, 12, 15, 20 losers on the trot. So it is hugely subjective, but value is part of the way I bet and part of the way I tip. Um, but you know what? Luck is by far the biggest factor, Simon. Right, OK. Now, modesty is a very alluring um, trait to have, but I can understand you can fluke it up once. You might, might even have a lucky guess up a couple of times, but not to win it as many times as you have. So I'm guessing there's an angle or a type of race to nap in that you you sort of have identified that paid dividends. It's got to be more than just luck involved. Well, I, Sam, I love betting in handicaps. For me, that, that's the ultimate value. And I think a really, really good example is Saturday's Lincoln, which has just gone, where we had uh, progressive three-year-olds and two, in particular, progressive four-year-olds that made the market. Al Mubir was the first one, of course, trained by William Haggis. And he was way too short in the market, even though he was only a four-to-one favourite. And bookmakers tend to let people overbet and therefore underprice a horse like that. And that makes the market for everything else in a race. Uh, migration shouldn't have been uh, an 18 to 1 shot in my book, and I do my own SPs for every single race. It should have been a 10 to 1 shot. So 18 to 1 was way, way too big. And I napped him, and as a lot of consequence, he had the luck in running, he has to come from the back. The gaps had to open, the gaps open for him. And there is luck for you again. But again, there's that factor of subjective value, and I thought he was 8 points too big. And when that happens, if you're actually betting on the race, forget about just napping. If you're betting on the race, the mathematics will tell you. You can probably even have a second selection in the race if you're having a bet as well. OK, so what, when you're doing, we'll just talk for a minute about the, the daily one nap, you know, the table that you've won so many times. What time of the day do you have to put your nap up for the competition? Normally before five o'clock the day before racing. So you have to get your homework done pretty early. I and mean, that's where the new um, advent of 48-hour decks, or relatively new, is a huge boon to anybody who tips in, in the Racing Post Naps table. It just gives you that, that bigger window to try and look at as many races as you can. I focus on handicaps mainly. Obviously, the group races where the form is there to be seen are also bets I like to have. If, if, if there's a big meeting, uh, Royal Ascot, Cheltenham, your keyboard meeting... Glorious Goodwood, um, Ancient Grand National meetings. I'll always nap at those meetings. That is huge value for you because the liquidity is so much better. Um, so you can back a horse that you think normally, if it was at a smaller meeting, you'd say as a 10 to 1 shot and you can get away at 25 for anything. This is absolutely ridiculous because the media are such a strong source to inputting what price a horse is going to be and therefore um, they 
tend to oversell a horse and bookmakers will price it up too short because a lot of bookmakers are scared that a major part of people punting on that race and therefore punting on that one or two horses are going to overbet the horse. And that therefore gives you a bigger choice of a horse at a bigger price. Um, VFM. Value for money. That's what you look for in but, horse racing betting. Yes, but I mean, for your personal betting, I mean, prices must be very important. But you don't have that luxury, do you? Tipping in the naps competition. No, you don't. I mean, I, I always think so. I think the naps is a really bad um, way to assess a good tipster because you wouldn't bet every day. We have to bet every day. There are two competitions: there's winter competition, summer, summer competition. So from October to April, end of April this year, and then May through to October. You wouldn't bet every day. I mean, if you're a really serious punter and you take your time out to investigate what you're going to bat the next day, you wouldn't bet every day. So for me, it's not a really good rule of thumb for the best tipster in the country, let alone probably in the city. Um, So I don't think it's a really good measurement. How many bets do I have a year? Seriously? 20 serious bets? 15, 16, mainly anti-post? I've already started my book for Cheltenham next year. Because that's where the value is. Once you get to eight weeks before Cheltenham, the bookmakers uh, constrict the market so much there is no value. In fact, many a time, you have a look at the prices eight weeks before Cheltenham and then the day of the race, many horses are bigger prices, even the fancied horses. Um, you've been... No, I'm going to go back to this in a minute. So, But, I mean, everybody you speak to, professional punters and stuff, all the value has been stripped out of the market by the off. The Betfair SP is... They tell me that it is the the most accurate representation of a horse's odds winning, but and but you've managed to beat that so many times and show a profit year in year. So that gives punters hope that it is possible and it's not just a fluke up because you've done it so many times. So it is possible to win back in horses even at SP. It is. Betfair SP is very interesting. You should mention is it that. settled at Betfair SP now or is it SP? No, it's settled still at industry That's trade even SP. more impressive that if people can show a profit over a year well, it, on a regular basis, regular being five times in 20 years. Yeah, well, well maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Um, I always think when, when you're having a bet, you have to be very considered, you have to be very strict with yourself and you have to go days, if not weeks, not having a bet. So the fact that we do have to nap every day actually goes against the grain for me. It doesn't feel right. Actually, it makes every day more exciting, to be honest with you. Um, but there again, value is the name. You, you mentioned about the exchanges, which have, which have changed the industry completely. And you say that the um, Betfair SP prices are a better reflection of the horse's SP. Well, let's go back to those big meetings. Royal Ascot, Cheltenham, Entry, York Ebill meeting, Glorious Goodwood. Um, in the big handicaps, when you get a price of a horse that's a bigger than 20 to 1 trade SP pies, the Betfair price normally is something like between 45 and 70% bigger. And that's why I like betting on the exchanges, especially the big meetings with deeper and better liquidity, the bigger priced horses. Well, I think every, any professional punter will tell you if they bet bigger priced horses in the big handicaps with deep fields of 16 plus runners and they get a winner, for example, migration 18 to 1 SP, much bigger at Doncaster for the Lincoln, you'll get between a 45 and a 70, 75% bigger price um, on the exchanges. Yeah, but you're betting win only, obviously. I you are betting winner, and that's the but, but then you can back it up by having a bet first three, first four, plus first five market, and in the big handicaps, you know, look in the Lincoln at the Grand National, etc. First ten, you can even get as well. 
Okay, now I want to go to your. This made me chuckle when I read it. When I read it first of all, when you sent me your info, uh, you've been a newspaper tipster since 1992. Yeah, long time. Right? Isn't yeah. It, yeah. So you were with the Mail on Sunday, and then a couple of years later, you were with the Morning Star. Now you can't get a much bigger chasm in political leanings and those two uh, yeah. titles. I was assuming that a, a tipster doesn't have to be a card-carrying communist <laughs> to, to be working for one of those papers. I think. I think when when you become freelance. You write to anybody and everybody, especially if you're not known. And you're on trial, you know? If you cannot tip a winner, you will not keep a job. And I remember ringing up a sports editor of the Daily Star on Sunday, I can't remember his name was, and he said, well, well, who are you? What have you done? I said, well, actually, not, not very much, but I'm a damn good tipster. If you give me um, four weeks, I'll give you free tips. Don't put them in the paper. I'll give you free tips. And if you think I'm good enough after four weeks then maybe you can put me up as a tipster in the paper. And I did four weeks, and I made a profit of 121 points. I was, I was hugely lucky. I had a 25 to 1 winner, a 16 to 1 winner on the first week I tipped up. I only did the main meeting every Sunday. And after four weeks, he came back to me and said, you're on, you're in. And, and on, I just started tipping for the Morning Star, and I'm not a red under the bed. But I remember when I first started tipping for the Morning Star, this is a great story. The, the guy who was the editor of the Morning Star, I can't remember his second name, a guy called John, he called me into the office, these dishevelled offices they had um, in the East End, and he called me and he said, do you want a cup of coffee? He goes, we haven't got a coffee machine, it's going to have to be uh, birds, I think it was birds. I just remember this implanted in my mind. He goes, Paul, we're looking forward to you taking over. You're only the second tipster for the Morning Star since the 1930s. He said, but Paul, if there's a horse running with a colour red in it, or... The city, a city in, in Russia, you have to nap it. And if you don't, I'll be very, very annoyed. And one day, um, a horse, I think it was called Red Rocket, ran, and it went at eight to one. I didn't nap it, and I got a call. He said, Paul, you do that once more, you lose the job. And I never, ever didn't do it again. I always stayed to those rules. Uh, but, you know, I'm not a communist, but I, it's my, it was my first ever um, um, journalistic stroke tipping job ever in, the, in horse racing. And um, it set me off on the long road to tipping success. And I still do the job now to this day. But I do a column every Saturday and I, and I, and I love it. Now, anybody of a certain age will realise that actually taking over at the Morning Star wasn't that daunting because Caton was legendary <laughs> for always being at the bottom of the naps table, wasn't yeah. he? He'd fire in the old 50-to-1 winner, which would take, take him halfway up the table, and then he'd plummet back down again. Yeah. So I, I didn't have an awful lot to beat. So when I won my first naps competition for them, I mean, everybody was overjoyed. They, they held a party for me. Um, it didn't sort of go very far. We had, uh, I think it was egg and cress sandwiches and a cup of tea, but they couldn't believe it. And, of course, the publicity they got from that uh, was invaluable. Right, so you've been a... a is a newspaper tipster a full-time job? No, it, well, it is from the point that you have to do your homework, you know, if you want to get it right. And as I said before, if you don't get winners, you lose the job. You know, even if you went, you know, for maybe a couple of seasons and finished in the bottom five in the naps table, you're going to be in trouble. They want people that can tip and are going to give them winners. Therefore, they're going to build up a following for the paper. Therefore, it gives them publicity. And the Racing Post naps, I mean, up to about five or six years ago, you'd win the Racing Post naps, 
you get taken to a really gorgeous lunch out, you get this big trophy, you get one of those big checks with £4,000 or whatever it was written on it. And it was like, it was a whole day thing. Nowadays, they don't do that. They don't give a trophy nowadays. They don't present you with a big check nowadays. They just credit it to your account, which is a shame. I think it's happened over the last four or five years. But, but it was a big deal. It was, it was the biggest thing to win in the world of tipping. Would you feel the pressure knowing that you may have, especially if you've had a purple patch, that yeah. people are going to follow you and probably knowing that if they back everything that you put up, they're going to lose their money. Is there a pressure well, if they back everything, if they back every nap... I mean, I'll... in the daily... You know, yeah, daily, yeah, yeah. If they back every nap, they're fools. You know, you've got to pick and choose, you know? You can't follow someone blindly. I mean, that's just... That's just blubbing ridiculous. You do feel... I'll tell you what, you, you do feel the pressure to a certain extent, yes. Um, but you feel the pressure for yourself as well. If it's coming to the back end of a, a naps competition, and you've been in the lead... And I've led all the way twice in a naps competition for six months... Boy, oh boy, is the pressure. And you pour over the form the night before and you write a short list of five or six and you cross three off and then you go back to those three because you're not sure the two that you have are the ones you want to nap. And then you ring around people, you ring around stables and you tell them who you are. Some are very affable and they'll say, yeah, yeah, you know what, he's got a good chance. Others, they just go, what are you, it's none of your business. You're a tipster. We are actually running our horses for the good of the, the owners and that's it. But you do feel the pressure from both sides. So people follow because you get letters, you get emails, you get people commenting on your Facebook and your Twitter handles as well. Um, so there is a little bit of um, pressure on you. And of course, you know, people that come into betting in the first place and have their first bet, rather like when they do when they go to a casino and they win the first time, they think it's easy. And it's not easy. It's damn difficult because they don't understand the amount of homework you have to put in. And there is a responsibility, not only to them, but to yourself, to get it right. If you don't get it right on a regular basis, what are you doing in the hot seat? Final question on this. Honestly, have, <laughs> have you ever had to have an educated guess-up because you've been a bit pushed for time? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. On many occasions. On many occasions. You know, it's coming up to the five o'clock deadlock. And I'm thinking, oh, no, 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 no. You know, I'm, 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 I'm two pounds ahead with a week to go in the Sporting Life Naps table. What do I go? Do, do I go conservative and back a one to two shot, yeah? Or do I go, right, I'm going to go for a 16 to one shot and I'm going to put this competition to bed? It's psychological. And you'll find a lot of people get to the top of the naps table, whether it's in the first week or three weeks from the end, and they absolutely cop out and they'll, they'll nap a one to four shot and it'll lose. And that's happened to me. Sticking on the tipping, I know you've got a lot to talk about, but we're sticking on the tipping because people want to back winners. Yeah. Can you talk us through your selection process? And um, if you're actually in your own for your own tipping, what would you? Your own personal betting. What, where, where would you start? Okay, so whether it's flat or, or jumps, as we go through the first few weeks of a season, um, I will have my little black book. And I'll start writing down horses that I've seen race. I'll look, watch every race every day at the end of the evening. And I'll put horses in my black book and I'll think, mm, this horse is better than it's shown there. Conditions weren't right. So many different factors weren't right for us. And, I, and I'll put that horse on my shortlist. And they will form the basis, the centre point of horses that I will tip and or back as we go through the season. If that horse is then declared next time out... 
and not all the factors are in its favour, I won't tip it and I won't back it. I think to be a winning tipster and to be a winning punter, you have to have an edge over the bookmakers. Because all the time, because of the percentage call of the bookmakers in the book, they will always have the edge over you. It's naturally going to be that way because, you know, 99% of the field are running for the bookmakers. You have that one horse, that one selection running for you. So for me to have a decent bet, and I very rarely do nowadays, um, everything has to be 100% watertight. It has to be in my favour. And the edge has to be with me and not with the bookmakers. And that, that is the most important uh, umbrella factor when you're having a punt, when you're having a bet, when you're, ha when you're putting even a tip out. And when you come, you know, you come up with one of these selections, you know, very rare one, what sort of figure are you having on? Well, it all depends. I mean, long time ago, 2006, I think it was, or 2008, I can't remember, um, I went to, um, I went to uh, Paul Nichols' yard and I walked around with Paul and he was very nice to answer my questions. And I'd say, um, who's that horse there? Yeah, I like the look of that. I like, I like, I like, physicality of horses is very interesting to me. Makeup of a horse is interesting to me. And I saw him school a few horses and I said, oh, that's a nice horse. Looks like um, he's very experienced, but he's a novice. I know he's a novice chaser, but he's, he looks very experienced. And he was a horse that came from France, where, of course, they jumped them very early on in their career. And it was a horse called Star de Mahazon. And I said, and I had a look at his breeding and I spoke to Paul about it. And I said, he's going to want a trip, isn't he? Yeah, we're going to start him off over two miles. But he jumps brilliantly because of his French upbringing and the way he's been schooled. And I followed this horse very early on. I thought, they've got a plan for this horse. And you have to have confidence in what you think. Never be swayed totally by the words of a trainer or a jockey. They're the worst tipsters of all time. That's the cliche. And boy, they are the worst tipsters. You have to go by what you see, the evidence you see, both if you're lucky enough to see a horse work and on the track as well. Um, and all of a sudden, I knew, having looked at the entries, I thought, they're probably going to run him in the Sun Alliance chase, which is the three-mile novice chase, of course, the Brown Advisory now at Cheltenham. And I backed this horse from September through to February that year. Uh, and I didn't used to bet a lot, and I didn't need to. It was 33 one 50-50, 33-1. And um, it won its two warmer prices at minor tracks. And I thought, why is this horse still 33 to 1? And I was doing continuity at Channel 5 at the time. And it came to the Sun Alliance Chase in March. And I had possibility of winning about £14,000 on the horse, just with five and £10 each way bets at 33s and 50s. And it was coming to the end of the film at the, in the afternoon at Channel 5. And when the, editor, the edits come up at the end, you have to talk over the edits. But that we're coming to the second last in the Sun Alliance chase. And Stardom Hazon was ten lengths clear. And, of course, I was cheering in my studio. I had um, the, the film on in one TV screen on Channel 5 and I had um, Channel 4 racing on the other TV screen. And my director was going, Q-Paul, Q-Paul, edit, speak over the edits, push forward to the next programme. You're supposed to point to the next programme. And I, I, was, I was going, come on, Stardom Hazon. And, I, and, and it won. And I, I ran out of the studio and ran round the floor of the building, which was a massive building, about three or four times, punching the air. People looking out the offices thinking, this guy's absolutely lost it, big time. And they came back in and the director said to me, oh, my God, you're in big trouble now. You missed talking over the edits of the, uh, the big film this afternoon. So I introduced the next programme, which was another hour. 
And my boss came down from Channel 5, head of broadcasting, and said, you're getting a written warning. And I said, yeah, but Stardom and Hazon was in the lead, and it was going to win the Sun Alliance chase. And she goes, Stardom what? Sun Alliance what? What are you talking about, Paul? I said, can I take you out for a drink tonight, boss? And she said, yeah. She was free that night. And I explained to her, and she just laughed her head off. She goes, I am going to have to give you a verbal warning, otherwise my bosses won't understand what went on. But in the end, she understood why. And, and on those winnings, I went to Australia. Good man. And then finally, on the, on the punting, have you ever considered punting for a living? I, 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 there was a time where, when I, the press association went from Fleet Street to Hull, and I was the Telehex racing editor. Um, for about three or four months, I did, because then I went from being contracted to, to freelance. And I did bet for about three months. And, and I made, made a fairly decent profit, but I'm always scared of the fact that you can start with a really good bank and everybody goes on a bad run. Even the, the best tipsters, I mean, for me, the two best tipsters, not professional punters, but the two best tipsters around, I think, are Rory DeLaghi and Paul Keeley. And they also go on poor runs, and I could never trust myself with that. But I'm lucky enough that I do stuff outside racing, like the voiceovers, like the TV and uh, radio presenting, that... I don't have to do that. That'd be a scary proposition. Right, we're going to go into that stuff now. So we're going to go back to your background. Born in Chester, brought up in Liverpool. Mm. Stayed one night in Chester because my mum wanted me delivered by a certain man. But we lived in Liverpool and he was based in Chester in a hospital in Chester. Well, it's not too far, though, is it? No, just down the road. So, I mean, Liverpool is quite a different place back then. Some of it's quite deprived. I mean, how was your upbringing there? I was lucky. I came from a middle-class family. We lived in a nice part of Liverpool. Mum and Dad were great, very loving family, uh, one sister, one brother, and we had a heck of a time. Um, so I was kind of way privileged to a certain extent. I never went without anything. A um, lot of love, uh, grandparents, fantastic, big set of friends. Um, didn't entirely love school, but that didn't matter because football was my life. But I uh, couldn't have had a greater upbringing. It always brings a smile to my face. It's interesting you talk about football um, synonymous with sort of Liverpool. Mm. I mean, you were a very good footballer, so had you not, you, you suffered a lot of injuries. Um, would you have ended up playing at Anfield if you'd not been injured? No, I wasn't good enough. Um, I played for Liverpool schools. I played for North of England as well, and I was on the cusp of getting uh, a little bit higher than that. And then I, I had a compound fracture of my leg. I broke it uh, at the age of 16, which is a real killer. And after that, I had numerous knee injuries. I'd snapped my medial ligament um, and had numerous operations. So even if I was good enough, I wouldn't have had any longevity in a career in football. I love playing football. I still play football now, uh, once a week, seven aside. And it's never out of your system. And a friend of mine came up to me about six months ago. He said, he said Paul, come and play with us. We're over 50s and we play walking football. And I just looked him in the face and I went... Walking football, I have to be in a wheelchair before I play walking football. <laughs> the day I can't run is the day that I give up football. And I love it today. I love watching it. I love playing it. I love kicking around just with mates. It's, it's the greatest feeling. So where did your love for horse racing come from? Horse racing, my granddad um, owned a horse. I didn't know the name of the horse, but he owned a couple of horses. And I would go around to his house on a Saturday afternoon. And I'd sit on his knee and we'd watch the ITV7. And it was great fun, you know, he used to have a little dabble. And then when I was about uh, 16, 17, I went to Jack Berry's yard in Cockerham in Lancashire. 
um, and I had a walk around there. And it wasn't f from a betting point of view. It was these just amazing beasts, these just fantastic athletes. You were in awe of them. And each of them had a different characteristics. And I, and I go back to Jack Berry's yard every summer, have a walk around, muck out and just, you know, be. You speak to Kevin Darley, who then was the, the stable jockey. And once it gets in your blood, that's it. It's, it's just a tremendous industry, but it wasn't from a betting angle. It was because these animals were just there, and they still are, just gorgeous, amazing creatures. Now, I was going to say that your introduction to broadcasting was very unusual, but having interviewed Bob Cooper recently, he's got a very similar story about how he got into broadcasting. You got a job working in a betting shop, mm. um, and then with Labrooks, and then they were looking for a broadcaster. Yeah, I actually uh, did my training in Old Street in Labrooks. And by hook or by crook, uh, I passed. You have like a day where you have to do, basically, um, you become the shop manager for a day and you have to sort out all the bets. And on that day, it poured down. There were unbelievable amount of rule fours. My maths was no good. I just about screamed to CSE grade one in maths. And you have the district manager standing over you and you're trying to settle all these bets. And in those days, of course, it wasn't done automatically. You had a calculator and that was it. And I, I, I think you had to get something like 86, 87% and I got 83, 84. And he let me off because there were so many rule fours that day. So I passed, got my shop in Shoreditch in East London, which in those days was rough. I mean, today it's the place to be, you know, pubs, clubs, everything. But it was rough, and I was there for four or five weeks. And on a Friday, you do your paperwork in a massive ledger, and you try and make everything balance. I was in there Friday night, 10 o'clock, racing had finished, couldn't get it to balance, knock on the door, open the door. This guy comes in in a three-piece suit, striped suit, unheard of in Shoreditch, walked in. He said, lock the door behind you. I said, I, said, I take it from Labbrooks. He said, yeah. And we started talking, and he, and those days there were no pictures. There was just a blower. There was just audio. And he said to me, he goes, and we started talking, he goes, you've got quite a good voice. He goes, um, um, there's a training broadcaster job going up at uh, Harrow on the Hill at Labrook's head office. Why don't you apply for it? I said, I've never done anything like that before. And he actually said to me, what do you think of the, the audio coming through the speakers in the shop? They called it the blower in those days. And I, I threw at him a swear word and told him I thought they were blooming awful but it was a bit stronger than that and he goes let me introduce myself to you he goes I'm Alan Lee and I'm the communications director for Labrooks International at which point I wanted the floor to open up in front of me and he said you know what you've got nothing to lose I can tell you don't like it working as a shop manager do yourself a, a tape a cassette recorder it was in those days do your voice send it up there I did and in four weeks later I was a trainee broadcaster at Labrooks so there's the luck thing coming in again at a huge sliding door moment did you ever get the, to utter the immortal words, making rapid late headway? Uh, well, when, when there was no pitches, you, you could, like, spin a furlong out for about 35 seconds, as they used to do in the betting shops. And that was the great fun of it, because if you were a punter, nearly every horse got a mention inside the final furlong, and you thought, yeah, I've, I'm still in with a chance. Um, yeah, and the answer to your question is yes, many a time. But every betting shop punter back in the day was <laughs> listening, listening for that. Um, I know, and then the hard-earned money was riding on your words, you know? Yeah, we're going to talk about your, um, the rest of your broadcasting career in the next part, but would you say that because you got to watch so many races and you had to watch them quite intently, mm. that that was an aid to your tipping? 
Yeah, I think so. When you're when you're actually best in, when you're actually working within the industry and you have to watch every race every day, if you have the wherewithal about you, you'll make notes. If you take your punting seriously and or your tipping seriously, you'll make notes upon notes upon notes and you'll go back through them and you'll try and highlight that when a horse comes up to her next time, you'll, you'll hark back. I used to have um, a ledger that was that thick every year, full of notes of horses. Of course, you didn't have computers in those days or you didn't have the, the, the memory on the computers to put it all on computer. Even the, the, sort of the old Commodore, I remember, coming out. So it was all handwritten and it was all labour-intensive. So that's what you did. Uh, and nowadays, if I do a day where I'm not doing work um, for a bookmaker within the racing industry, I have to then go home and catch up on every race that night. So it's hugely intense, hugely intense. But the, I mean, these days, everybody can do that, can't they? Yeah. But back in those days, you it was a bit of an edge for you no. to see all the races. Well, it, it, it kind of it was an edge, but you, you know what, Simon? You had to work very hard at it. You know, I knew people... I mean, I worked... I had a really good team underneath me at Labrooks in broadcasting. I had uh, Angus Lochran, Stato, and John Hunt, arguably the best horse racing commentator at the moment. And they weren't particular. Well, Angus was a big punter, but he didn't do it on form. It was on hearsay. He knew a lot of people. John wasn't a punter. And I was a punter, but I used to make notes upon notes. And Angus would turn around to me and he'd go, what are you doing that for? I says, God, I take my punting seriously. But we had two different ways of evaluating races and horses. I'm just going to go through, so we're interviewing you mainly, I mean I know of you mainly because of your prowess as a tipster and a lot of this I didn't know, I've got to admit, the, the broadcasting stuff that you've done. So I'm just going to rattle down through some of your CV. 1994-96 Hackney commentator, so we're on Greyhounds now. Mm. Uh, 20, 2000 to 2005 Crayford commentator, 1998 to 2004 Wimbledon commentator and I'm assuming this is all running in tandem with... Um, you know, what, what you've just described that you were doing. So, you know, how did all that come about and where did your love of greyhounds come from, even if it did? And just, just tell us about that. Love of greyhounds, before I did a commentary, I think like many people of my era, uh, was given a real jolt by, by two greyhounds, Skurlog Champ and Bally Regan Bob. When I was at uni in Brighton on the south coast, I attended Hove and Bally Regan Bob broke the world record, beat uh, an American dog's uh, record, a dog called Joe Dump. And we were there at the track and I thought, oh my God, this is amazing. Not knowing that this is a one-off for excitement, for calibre of dog and for the amazing atmosphere at Hove Stadium. We used to go there once a week from university. We were based in Brighton. And I thought it was great. And I love dogs. You know, we had dogs when we were kids. Um, and these were sensational athletes. People don't understand how remarkable they are. And I used to go to different Greyhound meetings. And then, as I did with horse racing, I'd commentate with the horses on the TV. Sometimes I was watching them, as, as all kids do. And I thought, this is going to be so much easier with dogs. Because you've got six dogs, even though it's only 30 seconds. And, but you've got all these colours of horses, and you can have up to 16, 20 horses in a race. And I thought, yeah, I'll, I'll start doing this. And I'd go to the dogs, I'd go to Walthamstow, I'd go to Old Wembley... I go to Catford, I go to Romford, I wouldn't punt, and I just commentate on the dogs to myself. And I thought, oh my God, this is easy. And the guys commentating on the course were just doing the numbers. And after lots of practice, I found out I could do numbers and names together. And I thought, I must have an edge here. So I wrote to, um, I think it was Mike Rayner, 
who was head of Wimbledon Greyhounds, GRA, the part of GRA group. And I said, can I come along and talk to you with a view to maybe getting in your commentary roster? And he said, well, come along, Paul. Let's see what you're made of. And um, I went on the mic at a real low-key meeting for one race, and I called the race. And I did names and numbers all the way around. And I'd always do a cheesy pun at the end, depending on the name of the greyhound. Pre-prepared cheesy pun? No, not pre-prepared. <laughs> a lot of the time, no. It's funny, isn't it? You know, a lot of the horse race commentators do, and I say to myself, oh, my God, that's terrible. Stop it. Um, and Tony Morris was the main bookmaker in the ring in those days at Wimbledon. And he came, we came off, Mike Rayner and I came off, we walked down the steps, and Tony came up to Mike and he said, you better grab this boy. I've never heard anybody do that before. And I didn't. I didn't think I was particularly good. You just do what comes naturally. Sometimes you have a natural aptitude for something, whether it's washing the dishes or doing it a greyhound country or whatever it may be. Everybody has an aptitude for something. It's just fine here. And in that moment, I think I found it. And from that moment onwards, Mike made me um, the resident commentator. And, of course, it meant, because that was the home of the derby, you get to commentate the derby, all the heats and everything. And that led to one of my biggest breaks, which was working with the, the comedians Hale and Pace. Yeah, tell us about that. That was a series that Hale and Pace did for Jobs for the Boys, where they'd go and do different um, jobs around the country, mainly aligned around sports. And one of the jobs they had to do was they had to become horse racing commentators. And along the way, the natural stepping stone was to become a greyhound commentator. So I took them under my wing for six weeks, went to their houses, taught them how to do it, did it on track. And lovely guys, it was, it was, it was kind of nice in a way, because I'd never been in the limelight before, in the media spotlight, working for the BBC, working for these two guys who were massive names at the time. And they were right at the top of the comics tree. Um, hail and pace and, and it, it was a sensational time for me and it was when the derby was was not at its height was slightly coming down but it was still a big thing you know you'd still get crowds of six seven eight thousand on derby final night and then i'd get to go in the center of the track woods afterwards and interview the winning connection oh it was brilliant it was lovely you you felt you were worth something doing that but when when the bbc asked me to do it it was like it was almost some it was it was the cream on the cake it, it was wonderful and that was the the days when there would still be a massive crowd, there'd be a massive Huge. buzz, there'd be massive mm. betting going on. Mm. Um, I mean, how do you feel now that, oh, I think all of those venues you mentioned, bar Crayford, and they're gone. That's great, yeah. that's great in racing uh, tracks. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, you know, how does that sort of feel? It's, Did you see it coming? I think everybody saw it coming. Stadiums are run down. GRA were bloody awful, what they did. But the, the industry as a whole, short-termism, short-profit, that's all they wanted. And, of course, a lot of these tracks were on land that was worth a lot of money, you know, if they were going to sell them to house, for housing developments or whatever development may be. I mean, um, um, Wimbledon, worth a lot of money. Wembley, it wasn't worth them carrying on anymore because the crowds were getting lower and lower and lower. Harringay was a big one to go as well. And as you say, Crayford's the only one which is only just inside the M25 ring that has left in London. You know, you'd had Greyhound racing at, at Stamford Bridge, where Chelsea play, and they used to get immense crowds there. The brilliant White, uh, White City Stadium, before Wimbledon got the derby. you get crowds of 20, 30, 40,000 and more. So it's an industry that for years has been on its knees, and um, I'd love to go back to commentating live at a track. But A, the crowds are awful. I don't think I get the same buzz. And B, I'd get still paid a pittance if I did that now. 
And um, I mean, are you are you involved with greyhound, greyhound racing at all now, even as a fan? Are you? I go very occasionally. I mean, I used to be for a year. I'd write a greyhound column for the Evening Standard, on the, mainly on the TV trophy, which I loved doing. And I was greyhound writer for the Racing and Football Outlook for a small time as well. For me, it doesn't entice me as much. You know, the one stadium we haven't mentioned, Simon, is, is the Great Walthamstow, which was a tremendous place to go for something like the Laurels all the way through the competition and the crowds. And everybody said, yeah, Walthamstow. Two things I remember at Walthamstow when you mentioned it to anybody, uh, chicken and chips in a basket and Charlie Chan's nightclub afterwards. And it was, it was just a great night out. Is Greyhound Racing now a great night out? Nowhere near as good as it was 20, 25, 30 years ago, sadly. Um, and something else, this is going back, back in time probably, you were um, racing editor on Teletext. Now, for younger viewers, Teletext was very important at the time, wasn't it, for fast results? And Tell us a bit about that. Well, I, I, I'd done three years as chief broadcaster at Labrooks, and it was hugely enjoyable, but I wanted a new challenge. I love writing. I love broadcasting, but I love writing. And job came up for the first ever racing editor on Teletext, which was the channel for Teletext. We had CFAX on BBC One and Two and Teletext on Channel Four. And it was a great opportunity for me. They were, they were based in the ITM building in Grazing Road, this great big modern glass-fronted building. And I'd never been as nervous in my life as I was when I went for my interview. And the guy that interviewed me was known to be uh, a bit of a bully and a bit of a, um, a hard man. And I did my interview, half an hour I did with him. His name was Peter. And he said, right, here's the test. He goes, and it was the Newmarket July meeting. He said, give me a tip today and we'll go down the booze, have some lunch and we'll back this horse. So no, no pressure at all. I mean, unbelievable pressure. I was nervous. No. So we had our lunch semi-inebriated by three or four pints, and I'm a, I'm a lightweight. And we went into the betting office, and, we, and the next race was like a 14-runner handicap. And he, Paulie goes, right, here's your chance. Impress me. I mean, it was a very unfair thing to do. And I picked out this horse at seven to one. End of story is it win by three lengths. Peter takes me back to the offices in Grazing Road, sits me down, he goes, I'm very impressed with you. He goes, I'm not really worried about your writing, but you can tip, and we want, we, part of your job is to do a tipping column. And there and then he says, you've got the job. And I, I nearly fainted under the pressure. I was so relieved. I remember ringing my mum, my dad, my wife, my auntie, my friends, everybody from his office. And, um, yeah, it was the next stepping stone. It was the next stepping stone to doing proper writing in papers. OK, so tell us a bit more about the, the writing in papers and also the, the racing work that you've done, the, the racing work that you've done as a broadcaster. Well, you know, it's like, I mean, we could be here for hours because I've been lucky enough to have so many different positions and, and, and so many jobs. Um, so um, when uh, Press Association moved up to Hull, I then had to do become a freelance contracting. So I did Teletext for about two and a half years. They actually moved to Fleet Street from Grazing Road, uh, which is an enjoyable time. Worked with a great, great team there. Really loved it. Uh, did Daily Mail did Morning Star, and then the first um, time, I, um, the second time I won the Racing Boat Nats was with a, a sports paper called Sport First, the first ever all sports paper in the UK. I mean, 
Italy have three football papers just with football. And I could never believe it that England, the UK and Ireland never had an all-sport paper. And I worked for them for, I think they lasted a year and a quarter. And um, had a really um, colourful editor in Chris Mann, the former Sky News uh, frontman. And um, he would always go out for lunches uh, and have a few beers and come back into the office in the afternoon and he'd go, so what's your nap, Paul? What's your nap? And I go, and he goes, right, I'm having 150 quid on it. And he'd go out, and every time I had up lost, he'd castigate me in front of the whole of the crew. And he go, oh, I don't think Paul's going to be here for very long. And, of course, then in the first season, I won the naps table. In the first year they were published, I won the naps table. And I came in, and he's all pally, he's like all over me, and we go to the big luncheon, we have the cheque and the big trophy, and Chris, Chris loved it. Chris loved the limelight, he's a natural broadcaster, natural showman, lots of charisma. And he got me back to the, um, the office, and we were both a little bit worse for wear. And he said, so what do you want? And I, being wet behind the ears, said, well, what do you mean? He goes, how much money do you want for us to keep you? And I said, well, you have to double my wages. And I thought he'd just laugh at me, and he doubled my wages. But the, but the paper, paper only remained in business for another six months. I was going to ask how, why the paper didn't. Why do you think it is that that one and the sportsman after it, why do you think that that does, format doesn't work in the UK? I've no idea at all. I mean, our love of football is amazing. Our love of horse racing is amazing. But it, it probably tells us how much more Italians love their football at the heart of everything. And football's immense in this country. It just didn't work. It just didn't work. The final part. Now, we've talked extensively about your, uh, your career within the sporting sphere. Mm. But you've also done a lot of work outside. People may well have heard your voice and not realised it's you. Mm. So can you, and can you tell us why you do other stuff and what other stuff you've done? I love writing, I love scripting, and one day I saw an advert in the paper uh, there was going to be a new terrestrial TV station opening up, Channel 5, or 5 as it was called then, and they wanted continuity announcers to talk between the programmes, introduce, and then come out with the end credits as well, and I thought, I can do this. I wasn't a very confident person in those days, quite introvert. And I forced myself to write to the head of communications at five. And she said, um, we've already filled, we've already allocated the five spaces. So you do like a, a four hour shift each. And then one of the guys dropped out for health reasons. And she rang me and she said, Paul, come in. Here's a set of programmes, here's some videotapes. I want you to write an intro and an outro. You can be as sarcastic, as funny as you want, because we're going to be different to the BBC and ITV. We're going to make it an entertainment, not just an, inf an information sort of sign to the next programme or the programme same time next week. So I did. I did it. In those days, they had a lot of American soaps in the morning, um, and a lot of them lasted the end credits two or three minutes, and I... I went out on a limb. I took a real chance. I made some bold statements. I rubbished characters. I was a little bit naughty. I was slightly blue. And I did them. They were recorded. 
And I went back home about five o'clock and I thought, oh my God, I've come a bit too OTT, which I've had done in my career. I'm a loud mouth, I say what I think, and sometimes that's let me down for certain jobs. And she ran me back later that day at five o'clock and she goes, Paul, your ring, can you start on Thursday? It was a Tuesday, can you start on Thursday? I couldn't believe it. I used to have to get up at four in the morning, I'd be on air between six and 12, and also cover the TV programmes, which is the same it is nowadays on Channel 5, Milkshake, and um, loved it. Absolutely loved it. And then I wanted to do um, uh, the Biography Channel, which I loved as well. Hard work. But the greatest fun. I met some incredible people. It's like tell my kids if somebody worked on milkshake. I know. Right. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, you also worked on the uh, quick thing about the Travel Channel. Yeah, I did the Travel Channel for about eight months. Um, presented that. Very young-looking Paul Jacobs. Uh, loved travel, loved countries, loved cultures, loved investigating, loved going to. Um, so that was great fun as well. It wasn't particularly well paid. It was only a minor channel in sort of the backwaters. But that was great fun as well. You, you were talking to people. The great thing is you, you're talking to the camera, but you're talking to thousands of people. Uh, and you put that out of your mind. What you do is you just have fun. You just enjoy it. If you like the subject, you're commentating, tipping, broadcasting about audio or audio and visual. If you enjoy the subject matter, it's, to me it was easy. And it, and it was great fun and it was a privilege as well. Now, a lot of this stuff is overlap. The dates overlap, obviously. Yeah. Doing, uh, I mean, you had a young family. Mm-hmm. How did you manage to juggle all that and have a family life at the same time? Was there not any sort of pressure from your wife to be, hold on a minute, you don't get to dogs every night? And... Yeah, it was tough. It was really tough. You know, I could be on the road for days at end because when I first started at Talk Sport, when it changed from Talk Radio to Talk Sport, I'd be commentating every other day at a racetrack, live from a racetrack. I was the, I was the first ever racing commentator. Plus, I had all my written work. Plus, I'd have to sometimes fit in Greyhound Racing in the evening. Plus, I'd be broadcasting for the Travel Channel. Plus, and or I'd be doing continuity. It was tough, but that's the world of a freelancer. You accept that, you know? If you really have the energy and the commitment and you want to get from A to Z as quickly as possible, then you do it. And that's what anybody does um, in their profession to be successful. I've been moderately successful, but I've been lucky to enjoy stuff. You know, I've stacked shelves at Tesco's. I've done lots of different things in my life. But I'm lucky to have the niche career that, I, that I've had down through the years. I, I've loved every minute of it. Now, one thing I, I always find interesting, I've got friends of mine who do a similar thing, but you've mm-hmm. worked with, or still do work, with Betfred and Paddy Power. Is yeah. that right? Um, as a pundit. Yeah. So a lot of the Cheltenham this year and stuff. So... Is it not tricky for them to employ you, knowing how good you are at tipping winners? Yeah, no, not really. Because even the best tipsters have more losers than winners. We all do. If you're asked to tip every day, you're going to have more losers than winners. Just go and have a look at the naps table. Even the winner has more losers than winners. It's just they have a level stake profit. So I go up three or four weekends in the month from London to Manchester, work for Betfred. Um, Great team there, great young team. I think I get on well with them as well. Fred Dunn is salt of the earth. Love that. Do a blog for Paddy Power. And then when it comes to the big festivals, especially Cheltenham, I do talk sport. I go on Hawksby and Jacobs. We just have fun. You know, this is not work. This, uh, some of the work I do is intense and you really work your backside off. But half the time you're doing work and it's entertaining yourself and you're getting paid for it as well. It's absolutely ridiculous. At Cheltenham this year, I hosted the Paddy Power Box with Ruby Walsh and Paddy Power 
for Paddy Power uh, Stairs Hurdle Day. I did 45 minutes. I'm on a panel hosting with Ruby Walsh. That's ridiculous. And I'm getting paid for it. You know, what more do you want in life? Well, that's an interesting question because you've worked extensively on, you know, broadcasting. Mm. You're extremely knowledgeable pundit. You're very talented. You can do commentating and all that. But you haven't been on the main, as far as I know, you haven't been on the main racing channels or ITV or whatever. Is that because you you alluded to earlier? You're a little bit too outspoken for main mainstream. I think now it is for the two racing channels. Very interesting meeting I had with Andrew Franklin, Channel Four racing uh, head, when I was um, teletext uh, racing editor, and he said, "Will you have lunch with me one day at Fleet Street in a restaurant across the road?" And it was my chance. I think I had a real chance of being on the team. And he asked me this question, and I forever to this day regret my answer. He goes, um, do you like TV? Would you like to broadcast on TV? I went, do you know what my answer was? It was the worst answer I ever gave in my life to anybody about anything from the age of one day to being 59 now. And I said, um, I think I prefer radio. And with that, I think my chance just folded me on channel, and I, and I found out later on that he'd earmarked me to be on Channel 4 Racing. But I was, I didn't think about it. And sometimes I am rather knee-jerk. Oh my God, if I could have my time again, it would have been maybe so different. But then I don't regret what I've done for the rest of my career. I've been very lucky. You'd have thought that being a live broadcaster, you'd have a bit of a filter before you answer questions yeah, like that. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. But I was very young then. I was only just married. You know, I love my job at Teletext. And I didn't think it was... This is just shows how novice I was in racing parlance terms. How stupid I how I didn't think about it. Why would Andrew Franklin ask me to have lunch across the road in Fleet Street when he didn't really know or he knew I was the racing... Why was he asking me to have lunch with him? It just didn't click. You could have been a great double act with John oh, McCurry, couldn't you? Terrible. Oh, so, so, so regret it. But you, but you say that you have been a bit outspoken mm. in your own words mm. so what have you been and when you say outspoken have you upset people with your opinions I mean what have you been outspoken about no I just think you know I think what's wrong with the media today and it happens in racing is that the industry is like one big family and they're very very scared to criticize each other even if it's constructive criticism you'll see it on ITV racing which I think is a great product but the one thing that's missing on ITV racing is that they won't um, criticize a jockey's ride or a placing of a horse if the jockey or trainer are there and they're going to be interviewed or they're possibly going to see it I, I don't get that I think if you have I think if you say it in the right manner and you're constructive and you criticism and you have a not a, a watertight argument but a, nonetheless a, a factually based argument from your viewpoint I don't understand why people don't do that in the industry but they simply won't. Now, is working regularly on racing or even terrestrial TV still an unfulfilled ambition for you, or are you, are you over that? No, it's still a, still an ambition. I've still got loads of energy, as you can see. I love the game. I love the game for the horses, first of all, for the tipping, second of all. It, it really makes me sad to see the greyhound industry floundering and horse racing to a certain extent in several areas 
not being as good as it can be and not for all parties working together for the good of the sport. That's what really irks me. I think I'm good enough to be on a, one of the two racing channels. They don't want me and that's their, you know, they've come up with that decision and you have to respect if certain people don't fit the bill, don't fit what they want and you have to understand that. You know, I, I get, I have great love working for, for Betfred and for, for Paddy Power. I love being in the studio at Betfred and being the pundit there and working with such great professionals as Mark Pearson and Matt Humes and, you know, and I get to meet all the football pundits as well. I get, I think I get great gravitas out of that. And, and, and I, don't, I couldn't love doing that job anymore with a really young team. It makes me feel 25, 30 again, which I'd love to be. So, yeah, I, I still have ambitions. I still want to present on TV. If it's a pundit, I present. I presented on Satanta Sports for three years uh, when they were doing the Cheltenham and Aintree Festivals uh, with uh, aforementioned Rory DeLaghi and, and Danny Mullins, and they remain friends of mine to this day. I'd love to do more. I think more than punditry, I'd love to do more presenting. Presenting over punditry is, is, is my main line, I think, and my better skill. OK, we're coming to the end of this now, but I'm going to take you back. Racing isn't as good as it could be. What do you mean? Because there's different factions um, warring against each other. It's this short-termism effect that killed greyhound racing, you know? Make a quick buck. Make a quickly take the customer and the punter for granted. No customer, no punter, no horse racing industry. You know, it's a basic rule, you know, at the big meetings. They put their prices up, not only for tickets, but also for a pint of beer. I, it's, it's just taking your audience for granted that they're going to pay it and yeah they probably are going to pay it but it's the wrong way to go about it earning the easy buck but not for the good of the industry um and there are so many different factions with the industry uh, bashing their heads against each other and time and time again that comes to the fore and it doesn't work the horse racing industry is better than that but it seems that these factions won't come together for the good of the sport as a whole Okay, the final two questions. Going back to tipping winners, where we started. Um, you tip thousands of winners. The, give us a basic rule that punters can follow to improve their selection process or at least stop them back in so many losers. Well, I'll give you two very quickly. One, specialise in one area. Five furlong handicaps, state races, group one, group two, group three, novice events. Hone in on one area so you don't have to do too much homework right across the board but when you do do that homework in those specific areas yeah put the time in because it will pay off and one from a betting point of view what how should people bet should they be betting you know how should they bet it's all down to the individual you know i love betting on the place part i think it's great when you think two days of the cheltenham place pot this year one day paid fourteen thousand to a one pound stake and one day paid twenty one thousand you go, I like to go for a small stakes uh, play for a possible big win. I always have them. That's why I, back anti I bet anti-post a lot of the time. You know, I remember backing big bucks for the uh, Stayers Hurdle when he ran in the Hennessy that year and he, felt he unseated in the Hennessy and I thought, he's going to go back over hurdles. And I jumped in, I got 33 to 1. Anti-post for me and trying to assess where a horse is going to go a long time in advance. Um, not only getting the monetary gain, but being proven right. You know, your judgment was right. That's a great thrill. It's a great thrill. But specialise in the area. Specialise in the area and do the homework. It will pay off. OK, brilliant advice. A final question. 
what would give you the biggest thrill career-wise in the future? I would like to present uh, on one of the two main horse racing channels, but outside of that, it's not, it's not just linked to that. I would like to present on main TV again if I possibly could. You know, I've done national radio with Talk Sport. I've done local radio with a brilliant talk, uh, uh, City Talk Radio, Radio City in Liverpool. That's what I'd like to do. I'd like to go on radio and TV and I'd like to present again. I just feel that's my strength. Excellent. Well, thanks very much for giving us your time. Paul Jacobs, thank you very much. Enjoyed it. Thank you.